0: The
1: Telegraph.
0: the Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss foreign volunteers and the river war being fought near Hassan, analyse the state of Europe's gas reserves as Moscow threatens another winter crisis, and we catch up with our defence editor, Danielle Sheridan. Who's marking a year since she reported from the front lines and adopted a stray Ukrainian dog, Andrivka?
1: Bravery takes you
2: through the most unimaginable hardships to finally
1: reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military
2: strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 21st of April, one year and 56 days since the full scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Energy Correspondent Rachel Millard, Foreign Correspondent Colin Freeman, and our Defence Editor Daniel Sheridan. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
1: So
3: the big news today is Ramstein, the latest in the Ukraine contact group meetings, which started actually a year ago this week. So the Ramstein meeting, 50 plus nations meeting in the U.S. Air base in Ramstein, Germany, pledging military support. So this meeting, this set of meetings is specifically for military aid, although there's other other bits and pieces as well of, of uh, just economic aid. But it's mainly military aid and kicked off by U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who said the three key issues they were going to be discussing would be air defense, ammunition and logistics. Uh, Then the the first thing that happened was Canada's defence minister, Anita Anand, has announced a 39 million Canadian dollar assistance package. That's 23 million pounds, 29 million US dollars. So new military assistance for Ukraine. That includes 40 sniper rifles and ammunition, a lot of radio sets and uh, and also a donation of 34, just over 34 and a half million Canadian dollars. ...for fuel and other other bits and pieces. That will go into the NATO fund for Ukraine. Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, he's there. He's been putting out a number of tweets. He said, and one of them, our top priority is to quickly build a multi-level air defence... ...slash anti-missile defence system. Patriots, RST, NASAMs and MiG-29 are the most recent... ...but not the final steps towards this goal. Given the Kremlin's barbaric tactics, we need NATO-style fighter jets we've heard no it's impossible a lot but I have seen firsthand how the impossible can become possible we will never forget how thanks to the compassion and assistance of our friends we were able to keep the lights and heat on in our homes last winter so that is happening at the moment Ramstein will um I'll be keeping an eye on that throughout this episode and hopefully get an update towards the end but that will that will come out uh, later on today as well next thing so Belgorod region the um, the region of of Russia, one of the regions of Russia bordering Ukraine, just the sort of northeast-ish of of Ukraine, a, an Su Sukhoi Su thirty-four fighter bomber, twin-seat, twin-engine fighter bomber, fired a weapon into one of the cities in the region last night, causing an explosion, damaging buildings. Tass, Russia's state-owned media company, cited Russia's Ministry of Defence, reporting this. The local authorities there reported that two people were injured. There was a massive crater. There's some quite. Um, Quite amazing footage, actually, on social media. We've got it at the moment on our website. Very lucky civilians, uh, car drivers who just passed the seat of the explosion. One car was sort of thrown in the air on its... Um, on it. It, it, the blast happened just behind the vehicle, and it, it was sort of thrown into the air on its front, on its forward axis. But the governor of the region of Belgrade said that the blast had sent a shockwave that damaged local apartment buildings, a number of cars, and downed power lines. And then in a glorious... Uh, I mean, it must be translation, but it, it is rather rather humorous, I think. Russian MOD released a statement saying that a fighter aircraft had lost ammunition over Belgorod, and in the statement it said, quote, during the flight of the Su-34 aircraft of the aerospace forces over the city of Belgorod, an abnormal descent of aviation ammunition has occurred, end of quote. I mean, that's that's putting it... I mean, that's, it's, it's bizarrely one of those occasions where I think we can be... We can believe what the MOD is saying here. It's it's accurate and probably truthful and abnormal descent of aviation ammunition. I mean, that's it. It's similar to the rapid unscheduled disassembly of Elon Musk's starship yesterday and Dominic Raab's career in the UK here this morning. But no, that might be my new phrase, abnormal descent of aviation ammunition. And then finally, the Ukrainian MOD have said in a statement that... um, Four hundred conscripts so we're on Crimea now in the southeast corner is there 's uh, four hundred conscripts in a in a base there, and they 've been moved to defensive positions in the west of Crimea in the facility of Lojiivka that 's like I say on the west on the coast, right next to the Sumi air base where those um that was under attack last year, possibly a bit late or maybe they are bolstering their defenses there expecting sumi and crimea more widely to now come under the the umbrella umbrella of um of ukrainian uh, air delivered munitions so we'll keep keep an eye on that one but i mean i think if ukrainian mod are able to say where these conscripts are going from and to then um then they'll be plugging those coordinates into a into a system as we speak And i'll take a
2: pause there thank you very much dom francis Dernley. can i go to you You've been looking at some of the diplomatic updates from the last day. Can you talk us through what you've seen?
4: Thanks, David. Breaking news from NATO this morning, reaffirming the principle formally that Ukraine will one day join the military alliance. According to NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, all NATO allies have now agreed to this. He says, quote, Ukraine's future is in the Euro-Atlantic family. This is all happening prior to the meeting of the US-led Rammstein Group, which Don was just alluding to. More than 50 of Ukraine's Western allies will be meeting at the US airbase in Germany to discuss future donations of weapons and military support to Kyiv. We also learned today that Zelensky has agreed to attend NATO's next summit in Lithuania later this summer. So quite interesting words coming out of there. Not a revelation, this. I don't think similar statements of intent have been made by NATO before, but it does continue to underline the journey Ukraine has undergone since the war began and its elevated stature in the eyes of Western countries. However, I do think it's important to emphasize that the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO in the short term remains very small. Realistically, Many conclude it will be impossible until the war is over and a lasting peace is established. NATO won't want to invite a member to join that could be at war again at any time, thus obligating them to intervene militarily under Article 5. And in that vein, it's been interesting seeing the German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius has been rejecting this morning a quick decision being made on Ukraine's membership at NATO. He says the door is open a crack, but this is not the time to decide. I think he speaks for probably many in Europe on this question, though no doubt there'll be some saying that it's unfortunate it's being vocalized on the very moment that Jens Stoltenberg is saying that Ukraine's future is in NATO. This is something, of course, that will be quite damaging for uh, Putin's narrative. But nonetheless, I do think it is revealing as to the state of mind in in many European capitals that this is going to be a long-term prospect as opposed to a short one. But the more significant story, I think, today, which broke after our broadcast yesterday, is that the United States and some of its allies are considering a total ban on $66 billion worth of exports to Russia still fueling Putin's war machine. The big change here is that it would represent a shift in principle from all exports to Russia being allowed unless specifically sanctioned to all exports being prohibited unless specifically exempted. A transformative change. Now, we understand diplomats have been talking about this privately for some time. This is all happening in preparation for the G7 summit in Japan in May. Bloomberg are doing a lot of extensive reporting on this. And so I'm taking a lot of what I'm saying here today in terms of their analysis from them. They're saying that under the proposed tightening of sanctions, allies would have to agree on what should be exempted. And that would probably include medicine and food. But Most things that we've heard, instances of of filtering through, cars, beer, chocolate, shoes, flowers, makeup, would all be barred innately unless exempted. And this would, of course, hit Moscow severely. The goods are not worth an inconsiderable amount. And uh, this is in part, of course, something that has been a subject of conversation for some time interestingly, the US Treasury Secretary has said on top of this, it's essential that China and other countries do not provide Russia with material support or assistance with sanctions evasion. So it does seem that there's a sort of double pronged approach happening here, that on the one hand, wanting to make it much more difficult for Russia in terms of exports and imports, but also to be saying to China that this is an opportunity for you to benefit from this. And uh, what's quite interesting, of course, is that China, have had to respond to this. They've said that no country has the right to interfere in its relationship with Russia. Riffing off what the US Treasury Secretary said, they've said that China uh, it, uh, continues in its no-limit support of Russia. It's not inflaming the situation in Ukraine and advocates a peaceful resolution of international dispute through dialogue and diplomacy. Further evidence, I think, of the Chinese line, which echoes Russia's that they just want the war to end so that business can return to how it was before the war. A note that's not unappealing to many countries, but of course throw goes completely opposed to how many Western countries view this, which is that it has led to a transformational change and that much more must be done. Staying on China very briefly, we learned that the Wagner group unsuccessfully asked China for supplies of weapons earlier this year, according to leaked intelligence seen by the Financial Times. Representatives from the mercenary group, of course, led by Pogosin, reportedly sought munitions and equipment in early 2023. This was swiftly not permitted from China. But nonetheless, I do think it's quite revealing that they felt able to ask this question at all of China. It talks about their independence given from the Kremlin, but also they clearly felt they were dealing with a partner who might be amiable to their request. So. Uh, even if nothing happened, it's quite interesting, I think, about the state of conversations and mentality towards China within Russia at the moment. In other news, just again on, Russia, on measures being adopted against the Russian state, Britain has sanctioned a Russian judge and four others linked to the arrest of British-Russian Kremlin critic Vladimir Karamuza, someone, of course, we've spoken to at length and about at length, jailed for 25 years this week. The British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly has said that Russia's treatment and conviction of Mr Karamuza once again demonstrates it up as a contempt for basic human rights. Today, five individuals connected to his case have been sanctioned, sending a clear message that the UK will not stand for this treatment of one of its citizens. The UK will continue to support Mr Karamazov and his family. I call on Russia to release him immediately and unconditionally. There were some saying, including on the opposition benches, that this was not enough uh, being done with regard to the case. So they'll be, of course, welcoming this development this morning. And finally, a a very interesting story, this, and it's an exclusive to us as far as I know. Joe Barnes wrote this up yesterday after broadcast that the European Union could have its own special forces commandos under controversial plans for rapid reaction forces to be created of around 5000 troops. The proposals aim to create a land, air and maritime force that could be deployed quickly to intervene anywhere in the world, particularly to safeguard the evacuation of officials and staff. Its formation could allow the EU to, quote, respond decisively and prevent and manage crisis in order to assert itself as a more credible security and defence actor, according to a report by EU officials and MEPs. As I say, a fascinating story because it's so revealing as to the feeling in some quarters within Europe, most notably, I think, by Emmanuel Macron for reasons we talked about last week, that the EU needs to have its own coherent, unified defence policy independent of the United States. Interestingly, these plans apparently were first drawn up after the flawed withdrawal from Afghanistan of the United States in August 2021, when EU leaders began to think that the bloc needed the ability to operate independently of the us and nato we've of course spoken about the huge significance of that and those who interpret the decision to withdraw from afghanistan as being perhaps a key trigger for putin into thinking that west wouldn't support ukraine if he chose the immediate months afterwards as the ones in which to invade ukraine so very revealing as to the importance of afghanistan and one that perhaps was predictable the only problem with this brussels plan is that They already have battle groups of around, I think it's 1,500 soldiers standing by since 2007 or so, but they've never been able to deploy them because of a lack of political support and the need for unanimity among the 27 member states something which is of course almost impossible within Europe and we've seen that time and time again just over agreements on say sanctions with regard to Ukraine and how far to go in cutting off Russia now supposedly according to these plans it will be different but I find it still very hard to see how certain parties in Europe could agree to this plan to essentially have certain soldiers from European countries sent in the name of Europe to do certain things which could prove controversial very very difficult sell for some I think But as I say, I mention it because I think it's very interesting and revealing as to how some are approaching the problem of European defence at this moment. Clearly, there is room for cooperation, but the degree of that cooperation and how to conduct it in a manner that can be speedy and decisive, something which is much harder when something needs sign off from multiple parties, remains to be seen. And it's something I think that we're going to see much more of in the coming weeks and months discussions of this nature, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, would you like to add anything to what Francis has just said?
3: Yeah, and, and thanks, Francis, for that. I didn't know we were going to talk about that today, but I think it's these all valid points, and I, I just wonder if, if those in the European establishment, France in particular, Mr. Macron, who who are making a, trying to make a point here about about saying we're not going to be behind the US on everything, are going a little bit too far. I mean, that that's absolutely fine. I don't think I don't think anybody should be behind anyone else absolutely on on anything unless it's fundamental values that are at stake here i mean you know i am not fully behind the us on everything the pronunciation of alu- aluminium for example the um my refusal to have cake at breakfast even if you call it a muffin and the correct sport that goes by the name of football so you know i'm not behind the us on everything but when it comes to this this challenge that is that we're 80 years since the end of the second world war when we uh, when we saw what the the worst ravages that humanity can can level on itself and at, at the generation that fought there are are vastly dwindling we don't have any first-hand experience of it the pictures we see in the movies we watch of it are black and white so we don't there's a kind of disconnect so we don't really feel that connected to it and we've we are i think at risk here of of forgetting what that was all about and we've now had Eighty odd years of this peace and the post-war settlement and what the, the rules-based international order is, and these the fundamental underpinnings of this rules-based international order are being challenged now by China and others, and most egregiously by by Russia. The the UN is not a is not a fully functioning. Uh, body, I've had you've heard me talk many times about my my problems with the, the United Nations. But the point is that we we no longer live in ignorance. We the, not just the digital revolution, but in particular the last twenty odd years of the interweb and what have you. You know, we now know so much more about each other. We learn we have learned so much more about the, the rest of the world. We've seen different societies and different systems for for organising humanity and. And so this is it. This is our moment right now. We can't say, oh, well, we should try the other side. I mean, this is where we stand up for the values that were fought for in the Second World War, even though, as I say, it feels somewhat distant to us. Or we we don't. Or we let people like Putin... And others say, no, mighty is right. We can do what we like. We're going to smash the place up and and do whatever we want. So I think it's absolutely fundamental that this is the the time we make a stand. That's why we've been doing this podcast every day since, what, day three of the full scale invasion. That's why we're not going anywhere, because this is absolutely fundamental to everything that we do. This is fundamental to the democratic underpinnings of our society. And, yeah, there's a lot of flaws with democracy, but I think Churchill said it was the the least bad option. I'll, I'll go with that. I mean the fundamental underpinnings of an open state and a, and a free press these, these are all things that are drawn right back down to that post-war settlement and all things that are challenged by by Putin so I just wonder if Mr Macron and others are trying to make political points here and and are putting at risk that that fundamental those fundamental values and so when it comes to to this war then yes never mind the, the muffins and the football and the the aluminum but i'm behind the us on this one and i think you should you should tinker with that that stance at your peril because there will be those out there looking for any any slight chink in the armor to get in there and 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 push a wedge between the allies and i i wonder if for his own domestic politics and maybe for 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 who wants to be king of europe macron is is going down a dangerous path end of rant
2: Thanks, Tom. Before we come to our foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, I caught up with our energy correspondent Rachel Millard earlier today. She's written a fascinating article you can find on the Telegraph website. The headline: Putin threatens Europe with fresh gas crisis. I spoke to Rachel in our studio to understand more. Here's our conversation. Rachel, you've been writing about European gas supplies and the prospects of another winter crisis. What's the latest in this space?
0: Hi David, thank you. Yes, at the moment we're actually in a reasonably good position, I think much better than people feared heading into this winter. Gas storage stocks in Europe are actually much higher than normal at this time of year, so currently over 55%, which is if not a record then very close to record and and only beaten by sort of strange years such as during the pandemic when the market was a bit strange. So I think the general sense is that we've fared much better than expected and therefore we're much better positioned for next year but that doesn't mean that things couldn't come along and create havoc in the market once more for example there's a lot of uncertainty over the pace of the recovery of china's economy which could have a huge impact on the gas market equally russia could also go further in in cutting off supplies it is still supplying some gas to europe both by pipelines and ships, and it could uh, it could go further and, and cut that off even more this year.
2: Can we go back a little? What did European countries do last year to survive the winter?
0: A huge amount. They really pulled out many, many stops to try and get through. That ranged from cutting demand. So there was a big push to cut gas usage by about 15%. And that led to measures such as households cutting the flow on their boilers, Businesses using less gas, including occasionally planned factory shutdowns and other things one might not have expected to see, such as the Eiffel Tower turning its lights off earlier than normal. So there was was a huge push on the demand side. There was also a push to bring in gas from other parts of the world, so lots of orders of shipments of natural gas from, from all over the world, the US, Peru, Qatar, places like that and new terminals built to bring that in. Obviously, those terminals had to be built very quickly, so some of them were sort of floating storage terminals that get moved around the place, and some of them have been used off the coast of Germany, for example. And then there's also been an increase, in, in sadly, in, in the use of coal, which has been used to generate more of the continent's electricity, although, in fact, it was used less, less to, to a lesser extent than feared at the start of the crisis, Coal-fired power generation increased by in Europe by about 1.5 percent in 2022, which was not not as bad as some people had feared. You mentioned
2: earlier that actions in Russia might change things in the months to come. Could you just give us a sense of what's happening in Russia? How how has the Russian economy and reacted to, to what's going on in to, to to Europe's increased preparedness?
0: I think generally the Russian economy has has suffered as a consequence of this. You can see that partly in the efforts that Russia is trying to make to diversify its gas customer base so we've seen Russia intensify its effort to try and secure another deal with China for a second gas pipeline it, it's got one very large gas pipeline to to China from its eastern fields but the president has been trying to secure a, a deal over a second pipeline which would secure Russia's customer base in 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 for, for a long time to come we've also seen Russia clearly very sensitive on the on the issue in the in the way that it's started goading well it's always been goading but it started goading even more Europe over its gas supplies so Gazprom Russia's state gas supplier sent out a sort of very snarky tweet the other day warning Europe that it might not get through next winter without without Russia so it's clearly um, it's clearly sensitive and that's coming from a position of of increased pressure on it on its finances because of the lost revenues from gas and oil.
2: Just on that Gazprom cast problem tweet obviously yeah. it's far too early for us to make predictions but what i what i'm sensing from you is that you think europe's in a relatively good place at the moment and, and 21st of april 2023
0: i think they're in a much much better place than, than than they could have been there've been no there've been no blackouts there've been no uncontrolled shutdowns they've they've fared much 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 better than, than they thought and a lot of that is to do with preparedness but a lot of that was also to do with a, a pretty mild winter generally speaking and so if we have a very cold winter next year that could change quite quickly
2: has anything surprised you following the stories? You've been covering energy for for a long time. So is, is there anything looking at over the last year or looking at you know, the months to come, anything that's sort of takes your your eye that, you know, has anything happened that you didn't expect?
0: I think in the UK it was very interesting to see the programs that were run to encourage households to turn down their electricity usage. So we had National Grid paying households to use less electricity at peak times, which was a, a very interesting and and quite Felt quite sort of seminal shift towards a different way of running the electricity system when people will be asked to manage their own usage much more, much more carefully. And it was interesting to see how people responded to that. It was generally, they generally had quite a positive response, and lots of people were very keen to take part. And lots of people were sort of tweeting their experiences. But it'll be interesting to see if they try and repeat the scheme, whether those levels of engagement will continue or whether it will start to become more more difficult as it as it as it goes on
2: is there anything else you think is important to mention for for our listeners to understand
0: Uh, i think one really interesting trend to come out of all of this is the much greater role of the u.s as a gas supplier to uk and the continent so to replace russian flows the u.s has been sending a lot more shipments of gas across the atlantic to the uk lots of which are being routed across britain and piped out to europe and that's, as a sort of, from a sort of geopolitical point of view, that's a very interesting shift because we're seeing, actually, the US has gained from this crisis, and and, and Russia has lost. So, certainly, a strategy that's backfired on Russia.
2: Rachel Miller, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Colin, I think you're with us now. Really great to hear from you again, Colin. It's really good to have you back. We introduced you by saying you've written a fascinating piece for The Spectator magazine, British magazine, about your interviews uh, and talks with a British man who's ended up fighting for the Ukrainians. Can you tell us about this piece?
1: Yes, this is an interview I did with a British volunteer down in Kherson, the Black Sea city on the, sort of, that lies on, on Ukraine's southern coast, Readers uh, listeners will remember probably that Kherson was the first city to fall into Russian hands early on in the war, and then was uh, retaken by Ukrainian troops, or rather the Russians pulled out in November last year. Since then, it, it's not been the liberation that quite everybody hoped for. The Russians essentially have retreated over to the far side, the eastern side of the river Dnipro, which is the, the the river on which Kherson lies and have simply sh- begun shelling the city from afar and that's been going on really now for the best part of three months. There's actually less people living in Kherson now I think than there were under the during the period of occupation because of the shelling. I was actually there about a month ago, the Spectator piece has come out a little later but while I was there, I interviewed a few British volunteers, including one, um, Christopher Perryman. Uh, his nickname is Pez. He and his colleagues have been quite busy. This is a they they work for a unit uh, that's attached to the Ukrainian army, a mixture of Ukrainians and foreign volunteers, some Brits and other people. They they've been busy fighting a kind of riverine battle, I suppose you would call it, on the River Dnipro, which, uh, for the benefit of listeners who don't know that much about it, is, is, is the main river that runs through Ukraine. It essentially divides the country into its east and its western sections, and it comes up through the Black Sea, sorry, f- f- from the Black Sea coast up right, th- towards, r- right up to Kiev. So it's, it's a pretty important river. And along the, the, the sort of mouth of the river, where, where Kherson is, are a series of islands and islets, An area of kind of land masses and deltas and so on. And that that area has now become quite important in terms of um, the strategic control of the Dnipro. Because if you have troops. And forces present on some of these islands at the mouth around the mouth of the River pro you can make life very difficult for any um, a, a, any any shipping that might be coming up and down there. Essentially, you you may not control the river completely, but you 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 certainly um, uh, can make life difficult for anyone who's trying to do shipping if you so choose. So, in in recent months, there's been these constant battles to control these different islands. There's actually quite a few of them. Some of them broadly linked, uh, others uh, largely on their own. And uh, this this is what these volunteers like um, Pez have been involved in. Um, it, it, it sounds pretty hairy, I must say. It's not it's not a battle that we're hearing about an awful lot compared to what's going on up in Bakhmut. But one thing that struck me, which is that um, some of these islands are pretty small, they're only a few miles long, and some are held by the Ukrainians, some, I think, held by the Russians, and essentially what they have to do, the Ukrainians, is provide a guarding force on the islands. So every so often, Pez and his colleagues would, uh, his comrades, would get sent off on a boat, uh, a speedboat, to one of these islands And land there and essentially maintain a guard to hold the ground to try and stop the Russians um, uh, coming onto the island from the far side. And um, uh, essentially they have to spend several days there. There's not really much else to do except sit and wait for the Russians to come and try and attack and try and gain control of the islands and from what he said it sounded like a lot of the time they're just that they're sitting in these makeshift bases offered in 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 old old homes on the islands old houses and just getting shelled a lot by the by the russians from the far side it did not sound pleasant not not least because if if things really go wrong there isn't really anywhere to run or to flee to hide to you're you're reliant on these these boats Dropping you off. It, uh, and uh, a lot of the time they are sitting, getting shelled up to about a 100 times a day. He said they'd had several very, very close uh, calls where shell, the, the shelling, the, the Russian shellfire had been extremely accurate. He believed he'd lost about three of his nine lives in one day alone. And um, you know, as as a soldiering experience, he'd been in Iraq um, quite. But he said that this was a lot tougher in some ways than what he'd been doing in Iraq because of the 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 sheer volume and uh, accuracy of the artillery. Often, you're never seeing a, a, a Russian soldier anywhere. It's all done. The, the shelling is done remotely. But what what. The, the, the nasty part of it is you're, you're sitting there holding your ground getting shelled a lot and knowing at some point that, that the russians may choose to attack and try and take the island at which point you've got no choice but to to stand your ground and fight
2: it's an absolutely fascinating account colin and as you said a a part of the war i don't think we've heard so much about could you tell us a little bit more about pez himself and, and his background how did he end up in ukraine what was he doing before
1: yeah, I'd say he's he's fairly typical of of some of the volunteers that who are out there. I've interviewed quite a few. They're all from they're from all over the world, but th- th- there's a there's a big representation of British and American volunteers. He was ex Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. I think he served in Iraq um, during the the early days of um, of, of, of the operation there. And was based down in Amara in in southern Iraq, which is a, a town I remember well. Being on a base quite often, where, where they were where they, where they were shelled constantly. So he, he knows his way around war zones. In the years since then, he has spent time working in private security, as a lot of ex soldiers do. By his own working in elsewhere in the Middle East in private security and in places like Somalia. But by his own admission, he's, he's no great fan of civilian life in the UK, he enjoys the, 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 the military way of life. And um, I think when, when the invasions, when the, the Russian invasion started, he was actually working as a security guard or heading a team of security guards guarding the, the HS2 line at High Wycombe from eco-protesters. He said uh, he was dressed in a, a high-vis hat, getting abused a lot each day, didn't really enjoy that. And um, I think when the war came up, I thought that th- this is something that he can contribute meaningfully to. And uh, that is, you know, I, th- I think pretty much a light, a light bulb came on in his head straight away. And that was where he decided to go. And he's been there pretty much ever since. I, the, the, he, that is pretty typical of a lot of the volunteers. I think there are some out there in Ukraine who have never fought before. There are, according to him, there's quite, quite a lot who shouldn't be there as well. There's sort of various fantasists and lunatics and so-called Call of Duty warriors, as they're often nicknamed, people who uh, whose only experience of combat has been playing games like Call of Duty, who, who really shouldn't be there at all but there are a lot of experienced ex-soldiers there as well and um I, I, by the sounds of things i think he is one of them although he's certainly saying that it, it compared to Iraq, that, that this that this is a very different ball game indeed just in terms of the the competence of the opposition in iraq a lot of the time you were fighting against insurgents who were often pretty dangerous foe but they, they weren't good with things like artillery in the way that the russians are at all uh, and as we know that this is primarily an artillery war a lot of the time
2: and another question from me did you get much of a sense from him about his relationships with his ukrainian colleagues what was the sense of the morale there and um yeah it, it'd be really good to hear a little bit about that if, if, if you've got much on that
1: yeah most of them speak very highly of their ukrainian colleagues i think like any Army. It, it, this is one of the things that interests me about the volunteers is that you you know you're having to fit yourself into somebody else's army, somewhere somebody else's way of fighting. You have to master certain commands in in Ukrainian, or you have to be with a, a Ukrainian unit where they speak a sufficient amount of English. There are language issues there. And of course, if you're on a battlefield, understanding directions, signals, shouts and commands and so on can make the difference between life and death a lot of the time. So so you've got all that to contend with as well as different tactics and operational procedures and so on. I, I think that the fact that I'm, I'm actually personally pretty amazed that a lot so many of the volunteers have stuck it out as long as they have. Um, but generally speaking, they seem to get on very well with their Ukrainian counterparts and you know that there are some very strong friendships being formed there i think a lot of the ukrainians are generally very impressed that the 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 rest of the world is is, there there are soldiers and volunteers from the rest of the world coming. Some clearly have more ability and more fighting expertise than others, but I I think, if nothing else, the the gesture is is considerable in in terms of engendering a sense of solidarity, a feeling amongst Ukrainians that that they're not being left alone and that there are people around the world who, who will give up safe and stable lives at home to come and help them.
2: Thanks, Colin. Dom, I, I know you've got a few questions, and after your questions, it'd be good to come to you just to get a sense of y- your views on this sort of river warfare.
3: Sure, thanks, Colin. Hi, great to chat to you again. Hello, Dom. Yeah. Hey, uh, so when you were when you were chatting to this chap, I mean, did he say anything about his the terms of service that he and other others in the international legion have had to sign up to for in terms of the time? They have to serve any any locations that they have to go to, or that they're not allowed to go to. The roles that are open to them, and any restrictions on future travel or or interaction, or even any any opportunity for would they be offered Ukrainian nationality after any period of service? And, and we have heard stories about some people having to surrender their passports, which I haven't actually, I don't really believe, but it was out there anyway. So just wondered if you had heard any of that.
1: Yeah, I, I can't re- recall what specifically he said about his terms of service, but. Generally speaking, from from interviewing a number of different volunteers, my sense is that they do sign a contract with the Ukrainian army. And at the beginning, that put a lot of them off because I think they worried that they were going to be forced to stay if it. You know, obviously and that they, they, they there was certainly a concern that if, if the war went in ways that were not to their liking if they were used as cannon fodder or something like that they would not want to be sticking it out in practice as i understand it most of the the the, the contracts are not enforced in any way that is very draconian if you want to have leave or if you want to leave nobody stops you you have to give a certain amount of notice i think ideally for operational reasons but that none of those who i've spoke to who've spent time under contract have flagged anything like that as an issue that that it that it means they're trapped or stuck in any way they also get paid i think the going rate is about something like about a thousand dollars or euros a month which it, which is not a king's ransom clearly it, it in, you, you hear the, the Russian media describing them as mercenaries. I don't think most mercenaries in in, in Britain would travel to anywhere where they are only getting paid a thousand dollars a month. My, my, I'm not my maths on the spot isn't very good, but I suspect that's less than you'd get for working for working on minimum wage in this country. And of course, you wouldn't be risking your life. I think they also get bonuses for um, combat pay if they're um, in somewhere like Batmoot or indeed sometimes down um it, doing certain things in um in the riverine area down around the Curzon, which, which which increases uh, what they get paid quite a bit possibly by two or three fold but that is only paid under certain circumstances um clearly a lot of the volunteers stress that they would that certainly the british volunteers they stress that they would be there anyway that, that the money isn't a factor for them that's not why they've gone i don't think most of them even expected to get paid when they went there but it's certainly if they've been there for six months eight months a year or more having a bit of cash coming in clearly helps with in terms of sort of paying bills at home and if they do Decide to leave or whatever. It, it, it means that their their time in Ukraine is not necessarily draining their own bank accounts uh, back in the UK very much. It gives them it, it gives them something just to sort of keep themselves fed and and clothed and so on and so forth.
3: Sure, and and did he um, did he say? Sorry, if I could just jump in, David. One more one more question. Just wondered if he had any any views on or any concern about any possible treatment by by Russia if he was taken prisoner. This 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 idea, as you say, that they they'd be treated as mercenaries, and and they have, we have seen you you've interviewed some of the guys who have been who have been taken as as PWS by. Russia. so any concern for his welfare if he were to be taken and also any concern from him about his reception back here in the uk it's not yet been properly bottomed out here in terms of policy about what the state here how the state here would view people who have gone to fight whether or not they'd be deemed illegal combatants so just wonder what he he thought of that and just i know i said one but there's always another one one final final question um the unit he's fighting with in around, along the river, uh, are they are they a sort of river warfare specialist? Are they held there for a long time because it's a very different, or not very different? It is a different skill set to fighting in in the in open territory or urban or what have you. And it takes, as it does with urban warfare or or fighting in woods and forests and elsewhere, it takes a while to properly dial into it and gain experience. So I wonder if he was held in that position to fight amongst the uh, yeah the riverine craft and and what have you for any length of time or if the units were just rotated in and out on a fairly regular basis?
1: I'll answer that last one first, Dom. No, I don't think any of them do have any particular riverine ex- experience. The job is to hold the islands and stop the Russians grabbing Ukrainian, island, uh, Ukrainian held islands back. So that is primarily a bit of kind of land warfare, I, I suppose. They apparently get dropped off by speedboat here and there. They do not drive these speedboats. That's some other some other branch of the Ukrainian military. I don't think, by all accounts, the travelling in the speedboat is considered much fun because most of them do not have past experiences as as river specialists. There's a lot of worries about falling overboard, for example, and you know if, if you're especially if, you, if you're if you're loaded up with kit, tumbling over into an icy river. With um, full body armor on and lots of kit, nobody really expects to come out alive. Apparently, if that happens, I don't think it has, but I think there's been a few near misses. As for regard as regards to getting caught by the Russians, well, we we've seen what happens to the POWs who who get killed, ca- oh, the, the 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 foreign volunteers, British and American, who get taken um, prison of war by the Russians. Generally, what has happened so far is that they get a, a month or two of very harsh treatment, interrogation, torture, and then put in a, a prison in um, the Donetsk People's Republic or somewhere like that. And we, we saw there was a there was a big um, exchange of prisoners in September last year, brokered by the Saudi government and Roman Abramovich, the uh, the, the oligarch. So I think I think if you were, that 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 was the last big exchange of POWs. You I think if you get taken prisoner, what you have to hope for really is that, yeah, well, what you can probably expect is some torture and then hope for um, a prisoner exchange. If as a British soldier you have fought in somewhere like Iraq, you've been fighting insurgents, though. From my experience with uh, British soldiers fighting in Iraq, if they f- fell in the, into the hands of the wrong insurgent group, that that was it. You, you were going to get killed. You weren't just going to be taken prisoner of war and then handed back. So I, I think, in terms of a relative threat, it's uh, it's probably nothing that they haven't worried about before in one way or the other. And then finally, in terms of them coming back, my understanding is that yeah, sometimes they do get questioned a bit on, on, on upon return, but it's not the in the same fashion as people who volunteered to fight in Syria with anti isIS forces um, some listeners will remember that a lot of uh, quite a lot of British soldiers went and fought um, with the kurdish anti isIS militias in syria back then there were there was talk of a few prosecutions and a lot of them had very heavy grillings when they came back to the u k mainly because of concerns that these Kurdish militias were were linked to Kurdish separatists' fight carrying out terrorist attacks against Turkey and also concerns about what kind of skills they might have been learning in that area in the Middle East where there's a, a, a ISIS and a lot of uh, terrorism going on. Apparently, in, in, with, with volunteers returning from Ukraine, it's not really been the same. I, I don't think um, the authorities are quite as worried about them. Certainly, there's been lots of them coming, coming and going in the last few months. Nobody's been arrested, to my knowledge. Those who have been interrogated or questioned, I think it's often just a friendly chat with the British police and often asking them, look, you've been on the front line, what kind of weapons have you been seeing around? Asking whether, for, whether, for, I think what, what they're wanting to know is whether on the Russian lines, among the Russian trenches, any of the volunteers are seeing new weapons coming in that might be, I mean, who knows, supplied by some foreign state that is not supposed to be supplying them.
2: This is absolutely fascinating, Colin. Can I just ask you to talk about one moment from Pez's experience? You write in your Spectator article that on his first stint, a Russian shell landed just 10 feet from him and two comrades. What
1: happened then? Yeah, I think he had a couple of very close misses on, on his, his first um, stint. He he got his his bags all destroyed. One shell landed very near him and basically destroyed all his kit. And had he been positioned just a, a few yards, a yard or two one way or the other, he would have probably been killed as well. He also said that at one point a shell hit and he looked at his um, flak jacket, which he had on at the time. And the plates of his flat jacket and, and the, the, the Kevlar in it were, were, were full of looked like a kind of dartboard. It was full of like tiny little darts, uh, basically little arrow shaped pieces of shrapnel, which I looked up and apparently called flechettes. And they're pieces of shrapnel specially shaped in a long barb shape, but I think designed by um, the French and used in artillery primarily in World War One to cause additional maiming. And I think he said he had about 15 of them in his flak jacket. Again, by some miracle, none had gone into him. As he said, you only need one bit of shrapnel going in at the wrong part of your body, and that is it.
2: That sounds like he had a very, very lucky escape. Thank you very much, Colin, for coming on to talk to us about this. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to mention before we go to our final thoughts?
1: Just one thing that that has intrigued me. uh, I've heard Dominic talking a lot on the podcast about operation ramstein i think it is is that right dom the the big the big sort of nato conference that goes yeah yeah
3: the ramstein contact group it's called it's called the
1: ramstein Confer- contact group the name rings a bell to me because when i it. was interviewing a couple of u.s uh, military volunteers who had gone to fight in ukraine who got taken prisoner of war and were tortured and interrogated by the Russians. One of them mentioned that they played music at him, sort of music torture by a heavy metal band at absolute full volume, a German heavy metal band, and their name was Rammstein. And I can't help thinking, being a bit surprised, that of all the bands that this group of Russian interrogators should have chosen to play at full volume, it, they chose the band Ramstein. I wonder if there's a connection. I have no idea. I just put that out there.
2: Thank you very much, Colin, for that. Let's go to our final thoughts, Colin. I know you have to to jump off. So thank you so much for your time, um, Francis or Don, Would you like to go first?
3: Well, I'll go first to leave 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 Francis to have the final word of the week. And it's just so Ramstein still still no more news about Ramstein the band or the uh, all the meeting happening in Germany today so we'll keep an eye on that over the weekend more on monday but just to say that our old friend dmitry medvedev he's obviously been on the sherry again sorry no no look, but hey it's five o'clock somewhere he's been putting out some tweets about these uh, the sanctions he's saying well, gloriously he's saying britain was is and will be our eternal enemy in any case soon enough they're impotent i mean i don't like quoting him but it's just comedy
2: francis durnley can i come to you for your very final thoughts
4: A couple of things from me. Listeners will remember on Wednesday the leaks that supposedly revealed the UK is among a number of countries with military special forces operating inside Ukraine. According to the document, the UK has the largest contingent of special forces in the country, around 50, followed by fellow member NATO states, Latvia, which has about 17, France has about 15, the US 14, and according to the document, the Netherlands has just one. And we muse then who this gentleman might be and what they might be doing. Well, very grateful to the listeners who've been in touch and have shared a piece in De Telegraph, no relation, uh, uh, in the Netherlands who figured out who this individual was. It's perhaps rather underwhelming. Apparently they are an in-place communicator uh, ensuring that military aid gets to where it needs to be. Important work, no doubt, but those who are speculating this month might be some kind of Dutch James Bond will no doubt be disappointed in this revelation, but very grateful to listeners who've been in touch to uh, answer that vital question. The other thing I just wanted to flag is an insightful and frank piece by Mikhail Kordakovsky, former political prisoner, businessman and founder of Open Russia. He's written a piece in Politico called The West's Short-Sightedness Makes Life Harder for Russia's Opposition. And it's a very, very detailed piece. I can't summarise all of it, but I would recommend that listeners read it in full. The essence of what he's saying is that in the spirit of self-criticism, the anti-war movement has to admit where it's not been as effective as it might like to have been in opposing Putin. He looks at reasons why this has been the case. Lots of uh, talk about how... The propaganda in Russia has been very effective at dismissing the impact of opposition forces. Really interesting insights into exactly what Russia has done to control popular opinion and keep it on side. He talks about the redistribution of resources from state granaries to well off segments of society. He says money is now flowing to economically depressed single industry towns in the form of military contracts benefiting workers in the defense industry. Money is also flowing into conscripts and contract soldiers, who, as a rule, come from the poorest regions and segments of society. The salaries they're now receiving are seven to ten times higher than they could earn at home, while the prisoners of those who've been killed or disabled, uh, uh, sorry, the families of those who've been killed or disabled are being paid more than they would expect to earn in their entire lifetimes. He's saying that this stream of revenue, of course, is being paid for by the oil and other raw materials exports, which are continuing to uh, have. Uh, bring in a sizable income for the kremlin so he says as a result of this and other factors which i can't as they go into all of them support for the kremlin is growing and the public are more than happy to overlook the horrors in ukraine and avoid self-guilt by drinking in the narratives they're being fed by propagandists uh, another way of putting these two things together i would argue is bread and circuses he goes on to talk about uh, why the, 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 this doesn't mean the opposition can't have an impact he talks about how it is that the cost of the work the state is having to do to keep the public on side is not insubstantial. As a consequence of the work of the opposition, It says that the regime is being hit by some of the most adaptive, active, and educated young people choosing to flee the country. No doubt, in part because they're they're reading and and, and receiving their information about what is really going on with Ukraine and and are opposed to it. Some of them are reporting to small acts, resorting to small acts of sabotage inside Russia. He talks about the active counter-propaganda campaign having to take place across the country in relation to mobilisation, something that is also uh, very alarming to the Kremlin. And as a consequence, the draft is having to be conducted very gingerly, avoiding large cities, something we've talked about at length in the past. The situation for the regime has also noticeably worsened, he says, in terms of engineering personnel, as many IT specialists have left the country. But... And this is the crux of the piece. Unfortunately, the short-sighted position Western politicians hold is making opposition work harder. And he says that accusing those individuals who are wanting to leave as somehow this being unhelpful to stopping Russia, he says, is wrong. He says that uh, to deprive them of the opportunity to secure visas, open bank accounts and create their own businesses outside Russia is a colossal mistake. Some of these individuals just can't take it and return home, where they have no choice but to work for Putin, whether directly or indirectly. Meanwhile, the criticism that these individuals aren't protesting or overthrowing the regime are based on a naive notion of what Russian totalitarianism looks like. And he talks about how hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, that this is just such a brutal environment that it is very, very difficult to protest in a way that would be effective, he argues. And he says, is it possible to replace the regime in Overnight, I doubt it, but can we create all kinds of problems for it? No doubt whatsoever. And he says every specialist who leaves the country or simply ceases to work with the state uh, and instead lives on remote work with income paid into bank accounts outside Russia is delivering a most powerful blow to the Kremlin's ability to maintain the technological level of its weaponry. However, Russians must also decide whose side they're on. There can be no support or sympathy for those who want to sit on both sides of the, fest in the fence. Such people are dangerous in a time of war. I call on all people to think not of collectively punishing all Russians, which is neither fair nor pragmatic, but to think about what can inflict the most practical damage on the aggressor. The greater number of those who get the chance to stop working for the regime, the more money will end up beyond the Kremlin's reach, and the harder it will be for Putin to prolong the war. This is why, for the opposition, he says, a public declaration that aggression is unacceptable that the regime is criminal and that Ukraine has the right to its territorial integrity must precede any talk of lifting personal sanctions. So a really interesting, not uncontroversial piece, David, one that I'm sure many listeners will perhaps disagree with, but I think it's vital that listeners do engage with this subject and interested to hear their thoughts on it, because some of the points he raises here are absolutely fundamental to how to effectively stop Russian effectiveness in this war in the long term. And there are some perhaps uncomfortable truths within this, not only about the failures, but also perhaps the approach has been adopted so far in certain areas, which has not had the desired effect. So a very interesting piece, as I say, in Politico, but a really important figure and one that, of course, we will reflect on again, I'm sure, in due course. Thank you very much,
2: Francis. You're right, yes, we'll definitely come back to that. As you say, it's uh, seen as quite controversial, I think, by quite a few listeners. So let's let's come back to that next week, I think. But thank you for bringing it up and talking us through uh, his arguments today. Thank you, Dom, Francis and Colin, for your time today. uh, And thank you all for listening. Have a very good afternoon.
3: Thanks, everyone. Best wishes, Valentina.
2: And just a footnote to today's episode... Here's a conversation I had earlier with our defence editor, Daniel Sheridan. A year ago, Danielle Sheridan was reporting from the front lines for The Telegraph. She returned to the UK with something unexpected. Danny, it's been a year since you found Andrivka, um, or Andy, as, as, you, as you call her. Can you remind us what you were doing when you found her?
5: I think it's great that you remembered her full name is Andreevka because she's just become known as Andy by everyone. But it was in Andreevka that I found her and I remember writing a long piece for the Features Desk about it. Paul Grover, the photographer that I work with, and I had been in Andreevka in around April last year reporting on the invasion. And Andreevka was one of those parts of Kiev region that had been completely annihilated by the Russians when they invaded. And houses had been razed to the ground throughout this small village. There were pretty much no buildings still standing. It, it was a really awful area. And um, we, the, the, Paul and I had been talking a lot about how you kept on seeing pets wandering the streets. They weren't your typical stray dogs. They were domesticated animals that had either ran away when they'd been scared from hearing a missile strike or had been abandoned by their owners. Anyway, one such dog was Andy, and she happened to come and claw at Paul's leg when he had his drone up and was taking some footage of the destruction. And I remember him calling me over because it had been a bit of a running joke how I was just falling in love with all of these dogs... And he told me to come look at her. And that was it. (laughs) Genuinely, I just had this feeling that I just had to take care of her. She was just, you know, anyone that's ever had a pet growing up, and my whole life I've had pets, knows that connection you can have with animals. And I think if you haven't had pets growing up, maybe you don't know what it's like. But I know that that so many people understand that connection, and that it's been really sweet having correspondence with readers because they have connected with my story about bringing Andy home, perhaps because they have rescued dogs themselves or simply had a pet that they really loved, and they do become part of the family and and you know it's crazy to think that it was a year ago that I found her because she's just become so much part of my life and I love how she's become a bit of a telegraph newsroom mascot and, you know, whenever I do write about her, people really seem to enjoy reading about her journey so it seems to have been a really lovely thing to have come out of something so awful and obviously the war is still ongoing and I'm not trying to diminish, you know, the gravity of of how terrible these atrocities are that Putin's government is committing. But I just mean from a really personal perspective, Mm. it was a harrowing story to have reported on throughout the last year. And I was just there recently, as you know. And so for me personally, having had her this lovely little thing in my life as a result of my reporting out there has been quite special and unique.
2: Danny, you went back to Andreevka last summer. What was that experience like for you?
5: I thought it was important to return to Andreevka because I wanted not only to check in on the various people that I'd interviewed there during my time at the start of the invasion, but I wanted to find the man called Vadim who had been feeding Andy. So when she was roaming around Andreevka on her own, there was a man that was tending to her and a number of other dogs who weren't being able to be fed anymore because their owners weren't there. And he was really emotional when I went to speak to him back in April. And there was this really touching moment where he said, if you can give her a better life, you should take her. When I was inquiring about, oh, could we, would it be possible for for me to bring her to Kiev? and see what happens. And um, he started crying. And and I remember thinking how, you know, emotional this whole experience was. So anyway, I wanted to return to tell him that she was now living with me in London and show him pictures. And um, it was really interesting, actually, because you couldn't get internet or phone signal when we were there in april and now i i was able to get my iphone out and facetime my parents who had who were sat on the sofa sofa with andy and so we went and found vadim and he was really shocked to see us again and it was really emotional he was rebuilding his house that had been completely destroyed and he said oh we would we were talking about the red dog the other day and wondering what ever happened to her so we faced on my parents and he just burst into tears and he called a neighbor over who also started crying and and then it you know i thought God, he really did love this dog but i suppose it's also about you know the just the whole kind of it's all wrapped up in the emotion you feel of having seen your village destroyed and something having been able to start afresh but then a subsequent conversation revealed that his son, who was 23, had actually been killed on the front line as the war began. And I had this real moment of realisation that his emotion towards this dog was actually so much more part of how he felt having lost his son at the start of the war. So, yeah, it was just a really poignant moment for me to to see what Andy coming to the UK had meant for him, but also how his tears translated into something so much deeper than just happiness at this dog getting a fresh life. And actually, you know, they were all part of having seen his son get killed when he had to go to war.
2: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.